Welcome to River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg. My name is Nolan Bicknell. My co-host Robert Zirk is away this week. On today's show, we are going to speak with Kevin Lamaru, Associate Vice President of Indigenous Affairs at the University of Winnipeg. He's going to tell us about the university's new Indigenous course requirements and how students are working on truth and reconciliation. Then we'll hear from a Winnipeg duo that won a prestigious award at the Global iGaming Summit and Exhibition in San Diego. Stacey Buran and Jason Figa of N-Cube Data Science will tell us about their new software that's making ways in the world of casinos. Then we'll speak with Cindy Tugwell, Executive Director of Heritage Winnipeg, to learn about Doors Open Winnipeg, an exciting event coming up May 27th and 28th, where some of the most interesting buildings in Winnipeg were, will be open to the public. And finally, citizen journalist Heather Emberley will join us to tell us about her new article, Truth Be Told, which was published on Community News Commons, Winnipeg's Citizen Journalism Project. We've got all this, some great tunes, and much, much more on today's episode of River City 360. Hello and welcome to River City 360. How are you today? It's just Nolan here with you uh, as my co-host Robert Zirk is in Ottawa for the CFC conference. He's learning all about community foundations and basically just how to make the world a better place, I'm sure. So uh, Robert, we miss you. Hope you're having fun. Be safe, travel safe, and uh, have a blast. And we look forward to uh, talking to you all about your experience next week on the show. But for today's show, it's a very interesting one. We've got a couple of phoner interviews that Rob was actually able to record before he went to Ottawa. One with the wonderful and amazing Kevin Lamaru of the University of Winnipeg. Always a fantastic conversation. Uh, another with Cindy Tugwell. She's of Heritage Winnipeg. We're going to be speaking in studio with Stacey Buran and Jason Figa of N-Cube Data Science. And we're going to speak with uh, Heather Emberley of Community News Commons. She's on her way into the studio in about half an hour as well. So we've got a nice full show. Some very interesting conversations will be had. I can promise you that. Uh, so let's just get right to it. We usually start things off with a song so today's no different uh right after the musical break we're going to hear robert's conversation with kevin lamaru earlier uh last month actually and uh but before we get to that here is sarah vaughn with i'm glad there is you right here on river city 360 said i many times love is illusion a feeling result of confusion with no smile and glossy sigh, a cynical sorrow, and so was I. I feel so sure, so positive, so utterly unchangingly certain that I never was aware of love anew till suddenly. Of overrated 
Next year on River City 360, we'll be bringing you stories connected to the themes of Winnipeg's Vital Signs 2017, a program led by the Winnipeg Foundation that measures the vitality of our community through research and surveys. For more information, visit wpgfdn.org slash vital signs. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. A few months ago, you spoke with our very own Stacy Cardigan-Smith, and uh, that was on the subject of reconciliation. And you touched on the course requirement at that time, and I'm hoping we can kind of talk a little bit more about that. I understand that the Indigenous course requirement was a student-led initiative. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about how that came about? Yeah, so the the story of the Indigenous course requirement actually begins with uh, the experience of students on campus who were part of a course where the instructor had brought in elders to come and share their knowledge and their teachings with the class as part of their learning experience. And that was met with what the students described as, as racism. You can imagine you know, uh, students rolling their eyes or, or being very dismissive or very um, unkind, uh, you know, in, in receiving these, these teachings from the elder. And our students were so uh, un- unnerved by that and so disturbed by that, so disappointed that that sort of behavior is still taking place with young people in 2015, I think, at the time, that they uh, began to advocate for the creation of some sort of a mandatory learning experience for all students coming into the university about Indigenous peoples and Indigenous experience. And from there, from that moment of recognizing that change was needed, that that their colleagues, their peers, their contemporaries needed some help in, in sort of rising above the legacy of racism that I suppose we've all inherited to some degree or another, um, that that began to work its way through the university system and eventually became the Indigenous course requirement. The uh, requirement was implemented beginning in fall of 2016. That's right, in September. What has the response been from students? So there's, of course, a range of responses and, and a range of experiences, and, and people are on a you know, a continuum of readiness to hear these things. But by and large, and I'm, I'm going to be totally honest here and, and share with you the most difficult questions that I've received regarding the Indigenous course requirement from students who have taken the course. And of course, you know, my, my offices would be the front lines of receiving a lot of those concerns. The, the toughest question that we've had to respond to, honestly, is why did, didn't we learn this any sooner? You know, why didn't we have the opportunity to hear about this before? Why is this the first time that I'm hearing about these experiences, this Canadian history in my life? 
And this is coming primarily from non-Indigenous students. And, and what that suggests to me is that, by and large, Canadians, especially young people, are ready to embrace change. We recognize that our relationships with one another aren't nearly what we want them to be, what they could be, what they should be, and we're ready to make a change. And, and this sort of you know, reaffirms for me a belief I've had for a while that much of the racism that I encounter, that I've encountered in my life, really isn't racism. I mean, not in the sense of genuine hatred for some other group of people. Certainly the consequences are very racist, but at its root, it's not that genuine malicious hatred. It's, it's misunderstanding. It's a lack of awareness. Most of the things I hear said about Indigenous people are, are factually incorrect. It's a lack of understanding. It's a lack of awareness. And, and for me, that's actually a bit of good news in that if the problem is lack of education, then the solution is education. It means that the university and universities and schools have a role to play in reconciliation. You know, I've, I've actually uh, had the opportunity to hear one of the commissioners who helped author the TRC Calls to Action, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, Chief Wilton, little child. And he said that by his estimation, that of the 94 calls to action, which we've talked about before, about 72 of them are about education and awareness. And again, that tells me that um, educational institutions like the U of W have a very real role to play in contributing to reconciliation. I would agree with that. And it's very interesting that you mentioned that last summer you did a workshop with staff of the Winnipeg Foundation, which Nolan and I were a part of. And we were both discussing afterward how we had never learned those difficult truths about residential schools and things like that until we were both in our adult lives. Right. So it's um, it, it definitely goes a long way toward building understanding and it'll be it's it's certainly a positive a positive thing for the university to have in the years to come um, I understand that there are a wide variety of courses also that can fulfill the the course requirement it's not just one specific course there are different courses in different uh, faculties of the university could you tell us about maybe a sample of what a few of the courses might be that uh, students have the opportunity to learn from yeah, so you're you're exactly right that um, there isn't a single Indigenous course requirement. There are many courses that meet that requirement. In fact, when this journey began, there was uh, uh, an institutional scan done to sort of evaluate what our capacity was to to uh, actually implement something like this. And, and you know, much to my surprise, I think, there were courses that could meet such a requirement across campus, across almost all disciplines and departments. Right, these these were things that people were already experts in talking about. You know, indigenous representations in English and literature, uh, through a historical perspective in the uh, even in the hard sciences, you know, religious studies, uh, uh, gender studies. These were courses that oftentimes already existed. And so what we've done is is we've worked together and, and collaborated so that each of the courses that meet the ICR are going to share certain characteristics. They're going to talk about historical experiences. They're going to talk about contemporary realities. They're going to talk about reconciliation. But there are courses in English. There are courses in history. There are courses across almost all of the departments in every term uh, we're working to try and develop and approve 
even more. And so there are literally, literally dozens of courses that, uh, that are offered in any given term um, that can meet this requirement, which is really exciting because what that affirms for us is that very simply reconciliation is not subject-specific. Hey, it's not something that historians have to worry about, but mathematicians never have to think about, or something that mathematicians think about, but uh, physicists don't have to think about. This is a human experience. This is about our national identity. This is about us as Canadians in real relationships with one another in 2017. And that's, uh, you know, that's a message I'm, I'm happy and proud to share, that reconciliation is not subject-specific. Absolutely. The university also holds a number of events. There's the Wawini Indigenous Scholar Speaker Series. Um, there was a recent panel discussion that talked about newcomers and treaty relations. Could you tell us about some of those events that are being held by the university, maybe some of the more notable recent ones, and maybe if there are any events coming up, could you tell us about those? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, I have to say I'm impressed you know as much about the university activities as I do. That's, <laughs> that's really cool to hear. Uh, yeah, we've got a number of things that we do that are open to the public that, um, you know, we're very proud of. The, the Way When A Lecture Series that you talked about is a, uh, a monthly speaker series that uh, my office helps to coordinate um, that brings in Indigenous uh, scholars from across North America. And you're right, you know, we just had a panel um, just this week that brought together newcomers from the Middle East and uh, Indigenous artists uh, Christy Belcourt and uh, Isaac Murdoch to talk about um, the relationship between uh, newcomers to Canada, especially in, you know, with uh, the, the, the current situation with asylum seekers in Manitoba and, and you know, us really looking at uh, the quality of our relationships with one another and, and treaties, right? And, uh, you know, these are the kind of conversations that we are, you know, happy to facilitate on conversation because it's, it's time to have these conversations, you know. Uh, you talked about, you know, your experience learning, you and your colleague, learning about some of Canada's difficult truths, you know, and, and I'm always quick to point out to people that, you know, it's, it's, it's not your fault that you haven't learned these things. There's a very good reason for that. I wouldn't want anyone to feel guilty for having never been taught these things, right? Um, that's part of the social history that creates the need for reconciliation in the first place. But I also think that it speaks to the goodwill of Canadians like yourself that there's such a receptivity um, to hearing these things now and to learning and to being a part of change. And it's, uh, it's very celebratory. So we, we try to encourage events like this as much as we can. You know, we were very proud to partner with the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation and CBC and the Winnipeg Art Gallery to hold a public screening of Gordon Downey's Secret Path film when that was released. And that brought together uh, people from uh, the community and communities to, uh, you know, be in a space of, of healing and, uh, and, and, and togetherness for something that was, of course, you know, very emotional and very moving. And um, we're so happy that the university is able to, uh, to provide that. You know, indigenization is one of our strategic directions. And this whole concept of indigenization is, is really kind of, <laughs> it's interesting because it's undefined, right? I mean, it, anyone could make a guess as to what it means, and everyone might be right or might be wrong. But for me, indigenization is about safety, honestly. It's about safety of learners. It's about safety of cultural experience, safety of grieving, safety of, of, of identity. It's about our well-being, and it's about our safety, and it's about the opportunity to learn and grow with one another. 
And uh, I'm really proud of that. And uh, I, I invite uh, people to come and be a part of these public events. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's really great that the university has taken such strides in building those relationships because that is at the core of starting on the journey to reconciliation. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and um, we're on this journey together. You know, uh, we've for years now uh, been embracing the, the, the phrase, we are all treaty people, which implies that we all, you know, are affected by the treaty relationship, which is absolutely correct. But, you know, I think that reconciliation also involves all Canadians. We've all been affected by the broken relationship. And the 94 calls to action are our roadmap home. It's it's how we get back to the country that should have been our birthright. And um, we all have an opportunity to benefit from that, and we all have a role to play in contributing to that. If uh, there are students or members of the general public who want to learn more about the events that the University of Winnipeg offers in terms of Indigenous inclusion, where can they go to find more information? Well, definitely come to our webpage. We have a wonderful communications department that is always uh, celebrating the things that we do. It's a, it's a community effort to, to make these uh, uh, broadly uh, shared. Uh, come and follow me on, uh, on Twitter, Kevin Lamoureux. <laughs> I'm always tweeting these things, and I'd love to, uh, to keep in contact with anyone that would like to uh, you know, learn, learn more about what's going on on campus, ask questions, and, and have a conversation. Excellent. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this afternoon. Oh, it's a pleasure to speak to you, as always. Stay tuned to River City 360 throughout the year for more stories connected to Winnipeg's Vital Signs 2017, a program led by the Winnipeg Foundation that measures the vitality of our community through research and surveys. For more information about Vital Signs, visit wpgfdn.org slash vital signs. Thanks, Robert, and thanks again to Kevin Lamroux for speaking with us. Always a wonderful conversation and very insightful comments, as always. Coming up after the break, an interesting story about how a Winnipeg company is taking the casino world by storm. Stacey Baran and Jason Figa of NCube Data Science are on their way into the studio to tell us about their new software that uses data to help casinos understand uh, habits that people are using while playing their games. Uh, But before we get to that, the Archies are going to sing Sugar Sugar for you right here on River City 360. Sugar Kiss could be I know how sweet a kiss can be Like 
Thank you for listening to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you today, and we're now joined by two very, very special guests. We've got Stacy Baran and Jason Figa, young entrepreneurs and scientists. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having yeah, us. Thanks. So we're here to talk about kind of a cool story. So you guys invented this software, and you recently won a competition in San Diego called the Global iGaming Summit and Exhibition. Um, so maybe for our listeners, tell us a little bit about what your what you won for, what the software does, and sort of how you came to this uh, project. Well, it's a product that has uh, a lot of history behind it. Uh, it actually goes all the way back to 2002, um, several years before I came to Winnipeg. Um, I was at the time um, with uh, the National Research Council of Canada uh, out in Victoria, uh, and I was interested in in data modeling problems. I, I'm an astrophysicist when I'm not doing this kind of thing. And uh, what, what occurred to me was that many of the problems that I was interested in were fundamentally the same problem. I was interested in modeling data, and if you're modeling data, uh, you're, you have to become an optimization expert, so I did. Uh, so I got into uh, evolutionary computing at the time, uh, which is uh, basically you're kind of evolving uh, solutions to mathematical problems, and they can do really cool things. You can solve problems you just can't solve with other with other methods. So you know, fast forward uh, uh, a dozen years, uh, the software has evolved since then, no pun intended, um, and uh, it's become a very powerful package that I call Cubist. And uh, a couple years ago, Stacy uh, introduced me to a problem in the gaming industry. Initially, I wasn't too sure about it, but I read a, a really great thesis on the topic and realized that it was just perfect for the software that I had built. And uh, we got into uh, gaming research, and we're doing uh, big data problems in gaming now, uh, and uh, uh, having quite a bit of success with it. So gaming, we're talking about uh, casino we're gaming. We're talking about casino gaming. So yes. tell me about your, your role in this, Stacey. Uh, so uh, I joined the company uh, much later on, um, and... Uh, it was basically the software up until I joined was working on you know heavy research style problems uh, involved in um, you know astrophysics and you know very uh, very research heavy things and I was kind of looking for commercial applications for uh, for the software and so I found this thesis from University of Nevada Las Vegas and it was about optimizing the casino floor uh, in order to maximize profits. Okay. Um, and I gave this thesis to Jason, and I was like, "This is great. You have to read this. We can do great things here." There could here. be some applications with the with the software, right? And he doesn't. He's not a gambler. He doesn't. We, ha you know, he had not been to Las Vegas at that point, and just wasn't that interested in it. So it took me a while to convince him to have a look at it. But once he finally did, uh, we sat down and we reproduced the results in that thesis in a night, and we're like, "We can take this so much further," and got really excited about it. It's a field that's based. This was two thousand a two thousand ten thesis, so it's been dead for a long time, um, and it's something that we're kind of hoping to revive. So um, we created this product, which optimizes the casino floor. Um, and this Global iGaming Summit Expo uh, is basically a conference for uh, North America's uh, online gaming sector, but also their land-based gaming sector. Online gaming isn't that big in North America. Okay. It's more of a European thing. Um, so we were part of the land-based uh, contingent. So when you're optimizing, what does that mean exactly? You're just making it as efficient as possible for people to walk through and, and get the most sort of access to the games? Or what, what exactly are you optimizing? Well, I mean, basically what we do is we take, uh, we take a lot of data. For, you know, you know, if you're in a casino, they're collecting data about everything. They know every transaction that you've done, how much money you've put in, how much money has come out, how long you've been there. So, I mean, from my point of view, um, 
you know, the, the real attraction to the problem is just the, the sheer quantity of data and the quality of that data. So when we're optimizing things, what we do is we work with um, some pretty sophisticated nonlinear models that um, try to understand the dynamics of the floor. You know, why are people where they are? Do they like this particular kind of game? Do they not like this particular game? Are there regions in the in the casino that they don't like? Are there regions that they do like? And also, there's a there's kind of a social aspect to it as well, in the sense that we also model the uh, the clustering of uh, of players. You know, some players really like being in crowded places. Others prefer to be in more isolated pl places in the in the casino, and they really differentiate based on the type of games that they're playing. So the model that we we ended up building, and this took a while to to sort out. Um, Ha, can, ha, has attributes of all the, has all these different attributes built into it. So um, what we do is we, we fit a big model to data uh, to understand the dynamics of the floor, and then what we do is we flip it around and we say now that we understand the dynamics, let's spatially arrange it in a better way that will ultimately drive uh, drive more profits and ma and make players happier. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to have a or do you have to have a, a background in psychology or understand the mind of a player when it comes to gambling or or is it just purely based on the uh, objective data that well, you're that you're taking in? I, I certainly don't. <laughs> so, uh, it, it's objective. It's based on data. Uh, I mean, going forward, I think we may want to t start talking to more people in psychology uh, mm -hmm. to build in some of their insights into the model. For sure. But right now, it's completely data driven. There, there's a there's a ton of, you know, I mean, my my philosophy is always you make the fewest possible uh, number of assumptions and really let the data lead you. And that's what we've done with this. Very interesting. So what was San Diego like? What did you guys experience when you were down there? How did you get invited to this? I, I understand you were the only Canadian company that was there. So how did that all work out? Right, so um, we decided to apply for this Launchpad competition, which is for startups in the gaming industry. Um, it was very last minute, as is tradition with us. We heard about it um, about a day before we had to submit nice. an application. So we rushed through the application. Uh, we did a good job, though, um, and we heard back about a week later that we were one of the five finalists uh, for this Launchpad competition. Um, so we were up against, um, you know, a lot of very charming individuals uh, that had great companies. A lot companies. of smooth talkers. And yeah, 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 they were excellent. And when we arrived there, uh, we were we thought we were pretty much there for show. We didn't think we were going to win. Um, and, you know... Surprisingly, uh, the audience latched on to nerdy us talking about math, uh, and we ended up uh, taking the win at the competition. So well, it was really exciting. Congratulations! That's very cool. So, like, what exactly is the competition part? Was it kind of like a Dragon's Den t style thing, yeah, Shark Tank, exactly. where you go up on stage and you do your pitch and and that's it? Was it a time limit or or describe? It the was. It was event. time limited. It was like Dragon's Den. So there was a there was a panel of venture capitalists on the stage. So they had oh. a vote. And then the audience had a vote as well. Um, so it was kind of, I think ultimately it was up to the audience decision, uh, but we had a pretty good response across the uh, the panel as well. So it was, yeah, Dragon's Den of the gaming industry is how they describe That's it. That's very cool. So like, what's next then? What does this mean for your company? Is this a really get you guys out there and, and, and sort of out on the public specter or spectrum? Well, we're certainly getting a lot of exposure from it. Uh, we've had a lot, a lot of calls from people, a lot of people show, uh, expressing interest. Um, ultimately what, what we want going forward is we want to start uh, bringing in some venture capital uh, to really take this to the to the next level. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we can bring something to the industry that they've never seen before, and you know, it's it's a pretty cla classical kind of industry. They they they're not they ha they're not really big on on innovation or new technology. People are telling us that this is. Uh, 
this is a, one of the most significant innovations that they've seen in about a dozen years in the industry. So we're excited about it. Uh, I want to start, uh, you know, really turning turning this into a product that we can take we can take places, and from there, we can branch out into a bunch of other problems that uh, are mathematically mathematically similar uh, to these ones. Give me an example of something that would be similar. Well, you know, any any kind of spatial optimization problem. Uh, is really will really be our domain, you know. Once we uh, we get past this one, just with um, like hu the human flow of traffic, kind of. Or uh, well, tra traffic problems are a little different, but uh, they're sort of sort of related. You know, things like uh, location of emergency services oh, okay. in a city, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's uh, that's an important one. Uh, yeah, crisis management, uh, those kinds of problems. Basically, anytime where you have a limited amount of resources that you want to distribute in the most efficient uh, way possible, it's mathematically almost the same problem. So okay. um, the first one, it, you know, it's, it's a bit of a commercial driver for things that I want to build uh, going forward. There's a huge class of problems, and they are, they are brutally difficult problems that uh, we now know how to solve. Very interesting. Well, congratulations on the win. Uh, that's very exciting. Bringing it back to uh, Winnipeg. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about Cubist or NCube? One, one thing that comes up a lot when we're talking about this industry is, uh, you know, the ethical implications of what we're doing. So obviously, you know, we're encouraging people to spend more money in a casino, which is not necessarily you know, the greatest thing to do. Um, I should stress that um, we are looking into the social aspects of that, and we go to a lot of conferences on problem gaming and the like. And as we evolve as a company, we're looking at bringing in psychologists, as Jason mentioned, um, and building into the model uh, a way to kind of deter the behavior of uh, problem gamblers. Of addiction, potentially. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that's something that we are looking at, definitely. Um, and, you know, the casino industry has also, uh, especially the, the land-based casino industry, has seen a decline uh, in recent years. And you know, the reality is that this employs a lot of people across North America. Mm -hmm. So, you know... Uh, increasing that bottom line uh, means a lot of uh, a lot of jobs for a lot of people. Well, it's a very interesting concept and a very cool idea that you guys have come up with. So uh, thank you for sharing it with us. Um, Stacy Brandt and Jason Figa are of NCube Data Science, and their product Cubus is the champion, the uh, the winner of the Global iGaming Summit and Exhibition in San Diego. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks again, Jason and Stacy, for speaking with us today, and good luck with everything in the future. Coming up after the break, Rob spoke with Cindy Tugwell, the Executive Director of Heritage Winnipeg, earlier in the week, and she's going to tell us all about the event Doors Open Winnipeg, which is coming up, and it's showcasing many interesting buildings all throughout our great city. But first, here's the Silly Symphonists with Merzy Dotes, right here on River City 360. Don't load, load, load that don't, don't load, load, load that don't. Merzy dogs and dozy dogs and little lambs did I be, the killy divey too, wouldn't you? Oh, Merzy dogs and dozy dogs and little lambs did I be, the killy divey too, wouldn't you? If the words sound queer, the funny to your ear. A little bit jumbled and jive Sing mares eat oats and those eat oats. Little lambs eat ivy. Mares eat oats and those eat oats and little lambs eat ivy. A kiddly divey too, wouldn't you? A kiddly divey too, wouldn't you? As for me, food do do do. As for me, food do do. 
leave us face it, food will do. There's the dots and goes the dots and lily ams and piggly ams and all kinds of lambs eat ivy. A kid ivy too, boy. Isn't that a silly thing to do? Mazzy dots and goldy dots and lambs get jivey when they eat ivy. I could get jivey too. Shoot the jivey ivy, do do. Words sound queer, funny to hear. Little bit jumbled and jivey. Mares eat oats and dogs eat oats and they like they little kiddies eat ivy. Mares eat oats and dogs eat oats and little lambs eat ivy. A kiddie eat ivy too, wouldn't you? It's such a silly thing, but it's really fun to sing. Oh, mares eat oats, dogs. Thank you for listening to River City 360. Robert Zirk here with you today, and I am now joined by Cindy Tugwell. She is the Executive Director of Heritage Winnipeg. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So I want to talk about Heritage Winnipeg's Doors Open Winnipeg event. It's happening on May 27th and 28th, and Winnipeg Buildings are going to be open to the public, basically. People are going to get the chance to check out a lot of interesting buildings in our city. Tell us a little bit about this event and how it got started. Well, uh, this actually, this event got started in 2000 in Canada, in Toronto, for Doors Open Toronto was the first Canadian event, and then it came to Winnipeg. We started in 2004 in partnership with the Downtown Biz and took it over. So 2017 marks our 14th year. And uh, we're quite excited because uh, each year we keep adding to the inventory different types of walking tours. And it's really opening doors to buildings that are normally not accessible throughout the year to the public. It's not just in the downtown core, too. I notice that there are buildings all throughout the city that are going to be participating. Um, architectural and, and culturally significant buildings all throughout the city and all types of buildings. So um, churches and homes and, and commercial buildings, industrial buildings. So it's the diversity and also, um, you know, that it's free. So one, you know, one weekend a year, Winnipeggers can go and learn about the city, uh, the history of their city, the culture, the arts. I mean, it's all melted into our heritage. And that's great, because there are so many buildings that you can pass by, and, and you know, they look interesting from the outside, and you wonder what, you know, what is what is this building, or what, what was this building in, in previous decades? So. And I think that that's what's really interesting to most people who go every year, is not only do you learn the history and, and the, arch, you know, the, 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 the history of the building and what it was used for when it was built, and by whom, but you learn about the social history of the city at, at, during that era, but also the benefit is you learn a lot of these buildings have been rehabilitated throughout the decades. And so you'll also learn about what it took to, um, for instance, adaptive reuse with some of these buildings and the kinds of nonprofits or organizations that are in there and how innovative they've been to reuse some of these structures. Tell us about some of the buildings that will be taking part that might be of interest to our listeners here at CJNU. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm biased. I love them all. 
Um, but uh, we we have um, a lot of interesting buildings that are very popular, of course, Down the Vert Museum with the Costume Museum. They have the exhibit in the Interpretive Centre. We have the Vaughan Street Jail, which is um, always popular every year. They do a theatrical tour. Um, we have the Legislative Building, uh, you know, the... the um, the buildings downtown, the White House for the first time on Portage Avenue, um, we may or may not um, be able to do a walking tour of the Hudson's Bay, so we want to bring also awareness to Winnipeggers during this event of buildings that are at risk of closing or, or, or not being utilized. Um, and another part of the um, doors open that's very interesting and very popular are the walking tours in the Exchange District and in the downtown. Um, the West End also does a wonderful mural tour. We've got several tours now that have expanded to Transcona. Um, and, and again, we could go see the Karen House in Charleswood or the St. Patel Museum. So we try and encompass the history of the entire city. Um, so there's a little something for everybody. There's even the Royal Canadian Mint, which is um, not necessarily a heritage building, but a very architecturally significant building. Um, so these are spaces and, and tours um, the People Bank of Montreal, they're celebrating their 200th anniversary. Um, we're doing the Minto and the McGregory Armories, which are both new this year. And we're extremely excited to have the Canadian Human Rights Museum this year doing a specialty tour just for doors open. That's very neat. So it's a really great way, it sounds like, to either learn a little bit more about buildings and areas in your own neighborhood that you may be might not know the full history of, or even just to go to a completely different area of the city, because a lot of suburbs in Winnipeg were once their own communities and have their own history in being separate municipalities before they joined up with Winnipeg. I think that uh, the tagline says it all for Doors Open. It's celebrating the stories our buildings tell. And really that's about um, learning and, and hearing the stories. People love that. The Ukrainian labor temper, how significant they were during the 1919 strike. Um, the things that went on that shaped and molded this city, which is significant to looking forward. I often say you can't look, you, you can't look forward until you really know where you've been. And, and Winnipeg has an amazing history. And the architecture that a city this size has is second to none. Um, we were the fastest growing city at the turn of the 20th century. And so we had some of the best architects in North America and in the world come to Winnipeg and build these structures. And I think finally for people who wonder why does, how does it affect me, it's bringing people to these spaces to see how they're utilized and, and to make them feel comfortable in their own city. And for Doors Open Winnipeg, there's also a voting component as well. Tell us a little bit about how that works. So it, it's, uh, there are some paper ballots at some, of the, um, at some of the locations. We'll list them on the website. And there's also for going into the digital age, it's an online voting that we started last year. And you can go online up to one week after the event is over and vote in different categories. So we have best architecture, best tour, um, best uh, restoration, best overall experience, and hidden gem. And it's really wonderful feedback. Um, you know, so the people vote, they tell us about their experience, and then the winners in each category are recognized with a significant um, art piece to say thank you and to give that sort of community pride to them for doing such a wonderful job and, and, and being good stewards of these heritage properties. Because in many cases, these buildings are run by museums or nonprofit organizations that really need the marketing attention that Doors Open is able to bring to them. 
that they cannot get through the rest of the year. So it's just a nice way to let them know what the public thinks. It's like a fun little friendly competition that also gets people engaged, right? And then they get a neat little award and, and we have an event. But I guess also for the public, too, to give their feedback and to really sit back and think, Wow, we really do have an amazing collection of um, of heritage buildings and, and unique structures. And the walking tours, I should add, are very, very popular. Manitoba Advertising Association is doing a ghost uh, signs tour, and those are the ghost murals on the uh, buildings. And they tell the story. The West End uh, mural tour is very popular. As you know, we have tons of uh, murals that have been painted on these buildings that tell the stories of the area's history. Um, and also the agricultural tour is very popular. And there'll be a death and debauchery tour in the exchange, which we think will be extremely popular this year. So the, an event like Doors Open Winnipeg uh, requires hundreds of volunteers. Is it possible, if people are interested in volunteering, is it possible for them to get involved, and how can they do so? Well, um, if you want to participate in the event, it's doorsopenwinnipeg.ca. If you want to volunteer, there's a section under Volunteer, Contact Us, and there's a form, and we'll contact you. We'd love to have you. Over 500 volunteers um, participate in this event to make it happen, and uh, we're very proud to work with the community. These are community stakeholders and, and organizations that we continue to work with throughout the rest of the year. So people who are interested in volunteering or just participating, we love to get your feedback um, and let us know um, how we can augment it in subsequent years. Excellent. So if people are interested in volunteering or if they're interested in attending and want to kind of plan out whether they want to take part in a walking tour or if there are certain buildings that they might be interested in checking out, they can get all that information online at doorsopenwinnipeg.ca? That is correct. And also there is a Friday, even though it is a weekend event, the 27th, 28th, we are kicking off with a Friday night event. Um, with store in partnership with Storefront Manitoba called Frontlines, and that'll be at the Winnipeg Free Press Cafe on McDermott. And that's um, a sort of a way to engage um, the public and stakeholders about heritage issues. So we don't look at this as a one-year event where we want to hear from the public. This is an engaging way to get feedback so we can continue the work that we do throughout the year. Um, and also the Winnipeg Free Press insert comes out on Thursday, May 25th this year. So again, Doors Open Winnipeg takes place May 27th and 28th, and you can uh, find more information on the Doors Open Winnipeg website at doorsopenwinnipeg.ca. Cindy, thank you again so much for speaking with me about Doors Open Winnipeg today. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Robert. Coming up after the break, we're going to be joined in studio by Heather Emberley. She's a community news commons reporter, and she just wrote an article uh, about the Bear Clan and about truth and reconciliation called Truth Be Told. You can find that on cncwpg.org. But before she gets into the studio, we're going to hear Bobby Lewis with Tossin' and Turnin' right here on River City 360. I couldn't sleep at all last night. It's on the floor
out of bed, turned on the light, I pulled down the shade, went to the kitchen for a bite, rolled up the shade, turned off the light, I jumped back into bed, it was the middle of the night, the clock downstairs was striking four, couldn't get you off the Thank you for listening to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning. And we're now joined in studio by a very special guest. We have Heather Emberley. She is the citizen reporter for Community News Commons. Heather, thank you for joining us today. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's good to see you again. How, how have things been? Well, I've been doing a few stories for Community News Commons. And this particular one, um, today, um, I'm going to just share a little bit of the journey sure. of what writing this story has been like. Awesome. Well, what's the story about? Tell us the title of it and tell us sort of the process that you've gone through, because I understand it's a bit of a heavy topic, but uh, it is. Let, let's unpack it a bit. <laughs> okay. What's the story called and, and why did you decide to write it? Um, I, th- I really feel the story picked me. Um, it just uh, jumped out at me every time I turned around. Huh. I called it Truth Be Told, um, subtitle, It's a Learning Curve. And it really has been a learning curve for me. Um, I start off the piece by saying we're on Treaty 1 territory. Mm -hmm. And it's that realization that I had a history degree, but you'd never know it (laughs) based on what I was not taught. And so this has been a learning experience for me um, to learn all the things that, uh, you know, you give your head a shake and say... How come we don't all know this? Well, because we were kind of taught, we, I'm saying, sort of Canadians in general, were taught one version of history, in yes. a sense. And the sort of truth in the truth and reconciliation is that we weren't taught the uh, Indigenous perspective a lot of the time. So what have you discovered in, in your research uh, on this article? Well, it started out um, <laughs> a year ago, uh, just before Canada Day, I was at a a team meeting at Community News Commons, and our editor had a draw. He'd been given some tickets for Canada Day celebrations at the Forks. We all put our names in the hat, and I won two tickets. What do I remember from that day? Uh, Do I remember the bands and the, you know, and all the activity? Yes, but there was one scene that really caught my eye, and that was the Bear Clan. Mm. And I could just watch them in their vests patrolling. And from where we were sitting, we noticed um, a woman in distress, and she did lose consciousness. And the Bear Clan came along, and there was one young man, a volunteer in his vest with his medical kit, who really, you could tell he was young, he was a nervous wreck, but he took charge of the situation. He knew what to do. He had everybody move back. He uh, called the paramedics. And I watched the whole thing from up above, um, right to the point where he escorted uh, the stretcher out. And I often thought about him over the past year, thinking, 
who was that? Uh, he, he, he volunteered. He put himself at risk in a huge public crowd. Mm. Uh, he did a great job. And when they said, you know, he was with the Bear Clan, I started to pay attention to Bear Clan in the news. Well, so who is the Bear Clan, for those that haven't heard of them before? They're a volunteer organization who patrol the streets. They want to stop the violence, and they are a group of volunteers every evening, all kinds of weather, who go out, men and women, and patrol the streets uh, in the core area, Mm -hmm. trying to keep people safe. Great. So, and how does that tie in with what you wrote for Community News Commons? I got curious about the Bear Clan. I saw a little bit of them on in, in the Facebook. Mm-hmm. And it was just one of those things that stuck in my brain. And then every time something would come up, I'd think about him and the Bear Clan. And it was like... It was like joining the dots. It's like, you know, those mm-hmm. little Russian dolls where you open one and there's another one mm-hmm. and another one and another one. For sure. And that's the process of this story. Every time I turned around, there was a new aha moment. Wow. And most of it had to do with what I didn't know about um, Indigenous people and their history. Right. So what, it, what, is, what have you learned exactly? What's the most profound aha moment, the most profound sort of light bulb that went off for you in, in your research and, and writing this story? Um, for me, I think it was attending um, something called the blanket exercise. Okay. What was that? Which is put on by, a, again, an organization who, whose aim is to teach people the history that we were never taught right. in a different way. Uh, the comment I've heard is that uh, every school should have this, everybody should experience this, because it's a visual representation of the words that sometimes we get to read in the textbooks. Mm. So we stand on blankets, it's um, conducted by an elder. Uh, we had a smudging ceremony at the beginning. And then as we stood on the blankets, which represented treaty land in Canada, the blankets slowly, slowly are eroded. Hmm. And we learn everything from the Indian Act right through to the present day. And it's powerful to see what happened to people uh, in a different way. It's a different way of learning our history. Uh, that just was not taught in the schools. Right. It's kind of an interesting metaphor of slowly taking away something that was once something uh, a, 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 that used to give you warmth and comfort and safety, and then all of a sudden mm. it's getting taken away. That's mm-hmm. very interesting. So so tell me about this article. I understand it's not yet published, or it's going to be published today, but... Uh, it is. What, what is the sort of uh, the crux of the story that you're trying to tell? Well, um, oftentimes... Um, you know, we, we are given the option of either writing a story from a research perspective or from a personal mm-hmm. perspective. And in this one, I say, you know, I had the choice. Uh, I was confronted with the challenge of either going the very comfortable academic route and right. sitting in that nice, cozy archives building on Vaughn Street and reading uh, about. That's in your wheelhouse already. That's yeah. kind of what you do and what you have done. Or just getting out there on the street and getting real. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up doing a bit of both. I ended up reading uh, newspaper artica- archives, and I read about uh, you know articles that were written about Roostertown in uh, the Winnipeg Tribune. 
And I did that, but then I had an opportunity with um, a social justice group from the First Unitarian Church of Winnipeg. And they are very, very active in social justice. And I went with some friends, and we went to meet me at the bell tower. Oh, right, yeah. And so I got to see the Bear Clan in Mm -hmm. action, which I hadn't seen since Canada Day. Cool. And we actually went on a march. It was like reliving my youth in a peace march. (laughs) And we walked around the streets with uh, signs about Stop the Violence. And then we were invited back to the Indigenous Indigenous Resource Centre. And it was something that, you know, I wish everybody could experience. Mm -hmm. We took off our shoes. We listened to uh, that very talented young man named Michael Champagne, who has done this for five years. Mm And he shared news and safety tips and made everybody feel very welcome. And then we had a community uh, meal uh, prepared by bombs, no, food, not bombs. Nice. Oops, food, not bombs. And they cooked uh, just a gourmet meal. And we got to meet people who lived in the Selkirk um, Avenue area. And definitely we are going back because there is so much to learn. Some of us rang that bell and... um, it was very, very powerful. And so from there, I just kept researching. And ironically, uh, when I was asked to talk about the writing process, um, you just never know where things are going to come sure. from and where they're going to lead. And I had done many stories on uh, the Children's Hospital bookmark. Yeah, that's right. At St. Vitale. Right. Well, I didn't realize they sold yearbooks. Oh, yeah, well, we'll that, see. Like and people people's, buy them. people's old yearbooks, High like school, their personal yearbooks, with school their, yearbooks with written in the back and in the front you little bet. notes. Wow! <laughs> and I got one from 1960 that is now a treasured collector's item of mine. But when I bought it, I bought it because Neil Young, and and we'll see the picture what? in the article. Yes, Neil Young's yearbook. And there's his picture. No way. And he even wrote a little story called Why I Chew Gum. <laughs> Let's hear it. No, I didn't quote that. Oh, okay, because gotcha. the reason I bought this was because he went to Earl Grey School. Mm-hmm. And Earl Grey School is where the kids from Roostertown went for junior high after they left grade six at Rockwood School. Okay. So I got to thinking, oh, my, I wonder if Neil Young had been to Roostertown and knew any kids from Roostertown. So I discovered, I learned something. You can't just email what's considered a celebrity. For sure. You have to write them with pen and paper and envelope and stamp. And you have to write their manager and hope that they answer you back. And did you? I did. And that will be the sequel. Oh, wow. That's yes. very cool. So well, thank you. The article name again is Truth Be Told. Truth Be Told. By Heather Emberley on communitynewscommons.org. Go on there, check check out the story, leave a comment, let her know how you feel about the story, and maybe sign up for CNC as well, and you can start writing wonderful articles just like Heather. Thank you so much for your time today, Heather Emberley. Thank you. 
That's a wrap on this week's episode of River City 360. Thank you so much for listening and a huge thank you to all of our guests for talking to us today. If you'd like to hear more views and news from all around Winnipeg, listen to any of our past episodes or subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at rivercity360.org. Again, that's rivercity360.org. River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg, is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM. If you'd like to give us a call, we'd love to hear from you. You can call 204-944-9474, extension 360. Leave us a comment about today's show, request a song for a future show, or suggest a topic that you'd like to see us cover here on RC360. Again, the number is 204-944-9474, extension 360. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as well by searching at RiverCity360 on Twitter and RiverCity360 on Facebook as well. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off for River City 360. Have a great rest of your day, a great evening tonight, and a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same place.